0: Praise you, Jesus, that you are working and speaking and, and drawing us. Uh, um, as I was praying with Jono, um, the phrase and the feeling even that came to mind, outside, I think, of my own natural feelings, uh, was that when Jesus saw, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them, and then Gary was praying and, and weeping and... Um, you know there's great mystery in our lives as Christians, and we sing that song. We believe God is our healer, and we don't always see the healing, right? And we don't always experience the comfort, and so there's mystery there, but I, I, I really believe um, that it's uh, that um, just as when one of my children is suffering, and I can't necessarily I, I can't make it different for him or her. Um, we don't fully understand why God does or doesn't in any moment, but I do believe we can understand that sense of that love, that compassion, that outpouring that God has for us as our Father. Um. Well, right at the beginning of the year, changing tack. Right at the beginning of the year, I set up our preaching series. Uh, with, with a simple format we were looking at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And three weeks ago or so, I started talking about the end. I called my sermon The Beginning of the End <clears throat> because the Christian story has a beginning. It comes from God. It is, we, are, we come from God. We're created by Him. The world is created by Him. It has a middle, and in our Acts series, we looked at the, the middle part that we are a part of. We are part of the middle part of God's story. The church is God's people in the earth, and we have an end. We have a direction. The fancy Greek theological word is telos. Telos means kind of goal vision, direction, the the sort of end point towards which we're aiming. Um, And it doesn't just mean the end in a chronological sense, so it means that too, it means the sort of end purpose. So the telos of a rugby team is to score more points than the other team. The, the point, the purpose, the goal is to get the ball across the line and score those five points and then convert them. Um, the telos of uh, a business might be to provide the best uh, product that it can. Hello, Micah. Um, it's to provide the best um, product that it can, or it might be to, to make money or something Uh, the telos the goal the purpose of the church well what's that? to glorify God to make his name known to make his name great among the nations to expand the kingdom well this idea of telos has both a purpose and goal orientation but also a chronological orientation. It also says there's an end point. There's a a future towards which we are headed, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. End timesy stuff and final things can be an interesting discussion to have, can't it? And so I want to introduce you to some people. Here we go. This is... uh, what should we call this? Is this is Thomas and uh, my friend Thomas? Let's promise you come stand, come stand with me a little bit. There, there you go. That's that's better. Thomas, stand there. Thomas uh, is very interested in the end times. He's read a lot of the Book of Revelation and he's watched some stuff online, and he's very concerned about what's happening in the Middle East. And he's pretty sure. Things are going to happen soon. Broadly speaking, Thomas believes that the prophetic stuff of Scripture is yet to be fulfilled. The promises of God are all in the future, and it's all pointing in that direction. Angelica, this is Angelica, Angelica, she can come and stand with me here. Uh, She's read a lot of books, she's studied these things at Bible college. She knows that a lot of scholars today would say that much of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled, that much of the reference point for the book of Revelation and other parts of biblical prophecy that they had their fulfillment in the first century and with the destruction of the temple and Angelica believes that um, yeah, most of these things have been fulfilled there's something yet to come but these two share quite a different view Elsie beautiful Elsie is uh, in a different kind of category altogether. She's not really sure what to make of all this. Elsie grew up in a sort of an Anglican tradition, and uh, I shouldn't pick on the Anglicans. She drew, grew, <laughs> Elsie grew up in a tradition that didn't really talk about end timesy stuff, except for the that line in the creed: "He will come again in glory," and she finds it all a bit confusing and would kind of rather not go into it, and is particularly confused by these two because they are very certain of their point of view. So these three people represent a diversity of opinion about the end times, about final things. And I've got a question for you, and I actually want you to discuss this around with one another. The question is not... Which one of them is right? And I want you to discipline yourselves to not engage that question right here and now. The question is, can these three people go to the same church and get along? Take a few minutes to talk about it. Sorry to cut you short, but I don't want you to be here forever. Um, Someone once said to me, they can get along as long as no one ever preaches on the book of Revelation. (laughs) All right? Um, Anyone want to offer a response to that question? If not an answer? Rose? Hang on, let me bring a microphone. Today I learned that I'm an Anglican. They can get along if they are more invested in being members of the body of Christ than in their opinion at the end times. Okay. So there's a sort of a priority kind of thing that maybe there's something that comes before. Any other? Amen. I mean, just practically speaking, assuming they only meet at church, that's what, two hours and the rest of the week they don't have, so they can just get over it and get on with it, I think. <laughs> that's a good word. Um... Anyone else want to make a comment? One of the funny things I've... Oh, yeah, okay, one more. And then I'll tell my funny thing. I mean, a good outcome is if they had a discussion and decided that they were all right, that things have happened, they will happen, and it doesn't really matter too much whether you know it or not, because it's going to happen anyway. Right, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, a good outcome would be the discussion that 's a, a portion of what you said there, but anyone else dying to say something before i chance is gone something i 've noticed when I bring this stuff up is i get and i not just this morning but definitely this morning, and other times when i 've looked around when i 've mentioned these things, I get sort of I, I see smiles like and like it 's not quite a nervous smile, but like a knowing smile, like okay, I know we 're entering into interesting territory here. I know we're talking about something that can be highly charged and highly divisive. Um, And that's really why I started this way, by sort of lining out these three hypothetical characters. And there's many more potential characters than just these. Um, But they are probably three common ones. Someone who believes... Very strongly, that it's all headed towards, it's all oriented in in the future. Someone who believes much of it has been fulfilled already, and someone who's like, I don't know. End time stuff can be very contentious and sadly divisive. And it's understandable because we're talking about last, final, ultimate things. And there's a certain intensity about that, isn't there? When we're talking about death and life after death, uh, when we're talking about something like judgment and hell and what happens when we die, whether we're a Christian or not, this is serious stuff. So it produces... And intensity, And the Bible doesn't shy away from offering us something quite intense. If we take the book of Revelation, for example, it is full of striking imagery, of violent imagery, of warfare, and blood, and beasts, and it's highly stylized, and it's full of metaphor and symbol that is meant to evoke something in us. Exactly what it evokes can be quite different and, and does depend on your, your sort of presuppositions. But one of my lecturers talked about it, the, um, the style of it is almost akin to a comic book or a sort of high fantasy type thing where it's deliberately trying to portray something that is extreme and, and out there. These beasts with so, however, many heads and horns and all this sort of stuff. Because of that wildness and the intensity and the seriousness of it, it produces often a strong emotional response. Fear is something that a lot of people experience when they consider these things. And to be honest, sometimes that fear has been deliberately and inappropriately stoked in the way that these things have been taught. Now, I've got to be careful here because there's a, a rightful sense in which we should be fearful and in awe and taking seriously what we're looking at. Because we're looking at something with big consequences and something quite dramatic but then that can also be used in a kind of a manipulative way, can't it? The fear thing can be used, and I think I brought up well, a few weeks ago these characters that make a prediction about when the world is going to end and you know, people follow them and they sell all their stuff and they have the cat put down and it doesn't pan out. There is a fearfulness. Scripture even says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? We're dealing with something grand and amazing and beyond us. But I think we've got to be careful not to be using that fear and and trying to stoke it for our own ends. As a result, some people have significant trauma about this topic. That's probably one of the reasons that we don't talk about it, and possibly one reason we haven't talked about it in this church. Because some people will have been in, in a church environment where they were really hammered on this topic, and there was no generosity of sort of intellectual wiggle room, it was all or nothing, and that's not an easy experience. Another reason that I've started this way, introducing you to Thomas, Angelique, and what was her name? Elsie? Elsie. Lovely Elsie. Um, Is that I think it is by nature, the stuff that we're contemplating, it is by nature mysterious. There is a mysterious element to it. And that is not a cop-out. That's not me trying to say it's a mystery so we can't say anything about it. But it is, I hope, uh, at least an aspiration to humility on my part. (laughs) An admission that, you know what, we don't understand absolutely everything about this topic. Much of what we're given, again, in Revelation and other places, much of what we're given is given through symbol and metaphor. And that doesn't mean there's no meaning. It doesn't mean that any interpretation goes. But it does mean that we have to approach it slightly differently to the way we might read like a car repair manual. If we want to figure out how to fix the car and we go on YouTube or on to find, you know, some advice we're going to get very concrete specific detailed instructions hopefully and assuming it lines up with the car that we've got we can be pretty sure and confident about these specific things cars isn't a good example for me to use because I don't know anything about them so hopefully that makes sense the bible is not let's say a scientific textbook It's not seeking to be that. It's not seeking to give us every single answer. And for that reason, the mystery is intentional. It's intentionally something that we are given to see in part, but not fully. Again, just as Paul says, of God, or of of the things of God we know in part, We prophesy in part, but not until that future time will we see face to face. There is mystery. The temptation, I think, of folks kind of in these two camps can be to domesticate the text. What do I mean by that? Some of the people, I'm speaking in generalities here, okay, come and talk to me later if this is hurtful. In general, okay, some of the people sitting here who have a very future orientation, especially out of, say, the dispensational tradition, have tried to kind of map everything out. Here's the timeline, here's kind of what's going to happen. And we can then map that onto like current events. So it's the Soviet Union. No, 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 it's the EU. No, no, it's this. That's one temptation. And those sorts of questions for my money are not illegitimate, but they're legitimate as questions, they're legitimate as seeking God to understand a mystery rather than let's map out a timeline. Because I think when you're mapping things out and trying to say this is exactly this and it refers to these things, you're trying to kind of control what is an uncontrollable text. You're trying to unveil more of the mystery than we've been given to understand. But this, this lady here can also fall to the trap of domesticating the text. And I'm not criticising or um, second-guessing the value of academia and scholarship, but there's a way that academia and scholarship can also domesticate. In seeking to explain something, you can sometimes explain it away. In seeking to try and make, uh, make it all make sense Whatever perspective you're coming from, you can sometimes be trying to sort of stand above it and analyze it like it's, again, like we're kind of in a, in a lab and we're trying to analyze this thing. And, but we're not in that position when it comes to Scripture, certainly not to God. We sit under it and we listen and we receive from it. Whatever your perspective on Revelation or on the end times, another reason that it's a divisive and a challenging thing is that it always implicates the present. If you look at Scripture, not just end timesy stuff, but Um, prophetic stuff throughout scripture, there's almost always a call to action. The prophets of the Old Testament were seeing that the people of God had totally rejected the covenant, they'd totally abandoned God and they were going after different things and so they were saying, if you keep going in this direction, here's the calamity that's going to fall upon you. Coming back to the book of Revelation, again, holding open the possibility of different interpretations. It draws it. it offers us a quite a stark vision. But if you read especially those letters to the churches um, at the beginning of the book, it's saying, here's, here's what you must do. Return to your first love, the letter to the Ephesian church says. So it's always got a practical outworking. And that's one reason that it gets challenging, because if the practical outworking is, oh my goodness, the world's going to end tomorrow, our actions might be quite different from if we don't believe it's going to happen tomorrow. Love it or hate it, the book of Revelation often evokes either. Or it evokes obsession at one extreme end, or it evokes avoidance at the other. Both extremes are unhealthy, I think. Where do I land on all this? Well... You may or may not know this language, but one of the things people talk about in relation to the end times is, and comes from Revelation 20, is the, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign, the millennium, right? And so one of the big kind of divisions, or, um, well, call it divisions, but among people looking at these matters is between premillennials... Post millennials and are millennials, a millennials being. Uh, now I'm not going to go into the details of all those. There is on YouTube quite a a lengthy kind of video discussion between those three positions, basically. Um, and I can uh, I think it's the title of it is an evening of eschatology another big theological word, which is worth looking at and listening to if you want to hear from different kind of perspectives. Um, I have a book on the millennium. On it's, it's a four views book, or three, and it has sort of different positions lined out. And that can be a good way if you're interested, if you want to try and understand different perspectives, that can be a good way to do it. Um. But I've been described, from my own point of view, I've been described as a pan-millennial because I believe that it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> and uh, that's not too far from the truth. It's not as sort of blind optimism, in my view. But I guess I, being, uh, I also grew up in an Anglican church, I probably was this person over here for a long time. And so in the Anglican church, we would recite the creed. You know about the creed? We don't really do it here. The creed, I mean, there's a Hillsong song about it. You know, we sing that one. Uh, The creed is the sort of ancient statement of faith that the early church agreed upon. Very much born out of trying to clarify what do we believe and what don't we believe and born out of trying to resist Heresy. So people were introducing a doctrine say that Jesus wasn't fully God and so the creeds in part were there to affirm no, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Well, the creed also says something about the end times. I'll read it to you. He, that is Jesus, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That's pretty good. I guess my perspective on all this is I I sort of gather my thoughts around that summary. And because of that, I have plenty of latitude, certainly as a pastor, recognizing that probably we have some folks like Thomas and like Angelica, and plenty of Elsie's. So I asked before, can these folks get along? Can they go to the same church and worship Jesus together? To which my answer would be, they'd they'd better. I've often lamented, On lots of topics that Protestant Christians, especially, the Catholics and the Orthodox, they've got their own problems, but Protestant Christians especially seem to divide over the finer details related to a very important thing, right? Let's take the Lord's Supper, communion. That's a an area in which there is great division in the church. And so different denominations are spawning themselves all the time in the Protestant world on finer and finer details. And the same thing can happen regarding eschatology, regarding the end times. We can divide and divide and divide over exactly what this verse means or exactly what this prophecy means. And I'm not saying that that stuff's not important at all. But I am saying I think that it's less of a priority if we hold the central truth up and unify around that, which is the gospel, Christ and him crucified. And if we then bring that into this end time stuff, the truth is, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So for me, and for us, insofar as I have the authority to say this, that's what matters most. And then our devotion to Christ together matters most. And then, if it comes to matters where we disagree, what matters a great deal to me is that we disagree well. So David did, oh, Daniel, did, David, did you mention having the conversation? right? So you don't have to you can stay here if you want. You can avoid the topic as far as conversations with others go. but I think we can love one another through difference on this matter. I just I want to close by reading something from the book of Revelation for you. Before I do, I just want to unpack that, those lines from the creed a little bit more. The first line says, He will come again in glory. That means that He will come again. Jesus is returning. And when it says He will come in glory... I believe what it's telling us is that the world, the whole world, and us included, will see Him, will see Christ as He truly is. Because Christ has already come, right? Pretty soon we're going to be going into the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. We've had the first Advent where Christ came among us. And there's a connection there with the second Advent. Advent, the second coming. But the difference is, John says in in chapter 1, verse 10, that he was in the world, Christ, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. When the creed says he will come again in glory, I believe what it's telling us is that he will come again and be undeniable. Everyone will know who Jesus really is. It also says that he will judge the living and the dead. And judgment is a very important word. It can be a very scary word too. And rightly so. But it's a very important one and it's throughout Scripture. So judgment is is something that in the next couple of weeks I want to spend a little bit of time dwelling on. And finally, his kingdom will have no end. The ultimate hope that Christians have above and beyond the details is that in the end, God will be all and in all and that the king will reign forever. If you can be brave and venture into the Book of Revelation, you can read a little bit more about that from verse uh, from chapter twenty onwards. Where's my Bible? Here it is. I recognise that this morning I've not um, done the traditional thing of opening up a passage of scripture and telling you what I believe is in it, or unpacking it for you. I guess I've been—I've felt that I needed to set some sort of groundwork for how I'm going to proceed in the next little while, and and what I think our priorities are. Revelation is actually an awesome book. It is wild, and it is mysterious, but it's also beautiful, and it raises our eyes to God and our imaginations in in a very unique way. The first verse says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ. When you read the book of Revelation, it's worth asking what's being revealed. That's what a revelation is. That's what the word apocalypse means too, in case you didn't know. It means revelation. It means a revealing. Apocalypse you know, in our common usage, is often refers to like a cataclysmic end of the world sort of thing. Like we're almost on the verge of nuclear apocalypse right now, right? Um, but actually, it means a revelation. So here's a portion of that revelation. This is chapter nineteen from verse eleven. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head there are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army." Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then... It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who had spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its width as he measured and he measured the city with his rod 12000 stadia its length and width and height are equal he also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. For no one, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the street of the city. Also, on, other side, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Father, we have set before us um, a future that is wild and mysterious and in some ways frightful, but also filled with amazing hope, a hope of all things made new, a hope of seeing you face to face, a hope of needing no place to go to meet with you because you are always with us. And God, I pray that for us as a people, as a gathered body, as a church, as Hillcrest Baptist, that we would pursue that end that we would long to see you face to face, that we would long to live in your world in your way, and that we would long to make you known to others. God, I pray that your Spirit would pour out upon us and make us into your people. Make us into a people that pursue you and only you. Give us the courage, God, and the faith and the strength to resist um, temptation and to, to put to death the sinful things that are in our lives. God, you have given us everything that we need to do so. You've given us your spirit. You've given us freedom in Christ. You've made us into new creations. Help us to live now, God, anticipating those streets of gold. And help us also, God, to live anticipating those leaves that fall and go out on the river and heal the nations. God, make us to be a people who are in the, the business of healing the nations. Help us, God.